This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Cody Audibles. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on into a deep dive and a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So uh, this week was not a typical Jeopardy week. Uh, and so we're not doing things quite our normal way. Um, uh, Monday through Thursday, uh, they re-aired the GOAT tournament episodes, um, the, the second half of the GOAT tournament, um, which we have recapped, actually. Um, and you can find that on our Patreon. Uh, all subscription levels from $3 on up get access to our bonus content, and we have full recaps for you there. They are taped. They're ready to go. We've done that. What we have not done is talk about Ken Jennings' final game, which is something that I had not actually seen before. Had you seen it before, Kyle? Were you, were you oh. an every night Jeopardy watcher at that point? Yeah, I was in... Uh... Let's see, that was November 2004, so I was a mm-hmm. sophomore in high school, uh, and Child. yeah, <laughs> yeah, so we were, uh, I, I was, I watched, I watched every night with my mom. I remember, mm-hmm. I remember watching this episode. I remember Nancy Zerg's bright red shirt. Yeah, um, yeah, I was, uh, I was in college at this time, and I was not an every night Jeopardy watcher, and uh, I think it was before people really did. DVRs. It was before the age of, I think, was it before YouTube? It might have been before YouTube. There were ways that people passed videos around. But in any case, I had not seen this episode. And so it was a real uh, delight for them to pull this one out of the archives and for me to get to see this sort of iconic moment in Jeopardy history. So in this episode, we have David Hankins, a college student from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Nancy Zerg, a realtor from Ventura, California, and Ken Jennings, a software engineer from Salt Lake City, Utah, whose 74-day cash winnings total $2,520,700. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, No Soup For You, Festivus, The Contest, Yada Yada Yada, A Category About Nothing, and Some Brain Teasers About Seinfeld, which are recorded clues from the cast of Seinfeld. It was very weird to see everyone looking so much younger. Have you watched uh, any comedians in cars getting coffee? I've watched like a little bit, like an episode or two. Um, yeah. But yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, yes. Jerry Seinfeld has not aged poorly. He's aged pretty well, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, seeing him there and, and, and the others, you know, and Alex, you know, mm-hmm. 16 yeah. years ago. Oh man, uh-huh. that was that was weird. That yes, was weird. for sure. I mean, also Ken Jennings, a familiar face since then, sure. uh, is in true, like true, full true. baby face mode. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's true. That's true too. Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. I thought the no soup for you category was really hard. Um, yeah, you may not pay that much attention to my my learned league stats, but I will report that. Of trivia nerds, I am in the 99th percentile of knowing about soup. Um, (laughs) Having placed in the top 20 on the soup 
one day special. Uh, this was a category where uh, they gave three words and you were supposed to identify the one that was not a soup. And I got one or two of them. I, I quote unquote got four of them, but they were really guesses. <laughs> like just that, that one is the one I will pick based on almost nothing. I mean, I knew, I think in each, and, and they probably did this on purpose, in each of them, I knew one of them for sure was a soup. Mm-hmm. And then the two others, it was kind of a toss-up between them. Yeah. Yes, I, I had a similar experience at the $600 level. The clue was Poudrette, Stratitella, Philadelphia Pepper Pot, and I thought to myself, Stracciatella is a kind of ice cream, so it's mm-hmm. not a soup. But in fact, it I, I think it is a kind of ice cream, but it's also a kind of soup. Um, Poudrette mm. is fertilizer. I thought perhaps Stracciatella was actually a strain of bacteria. Mm. So that's what I uh, I was wrong about that too. Uh, the $1,000 clue was actually the only one that I knew pretty much for sure. Only because I recognized the term Rondajon. Um, so- ballet term right it is a ballet term i know it from marching band we Mm -hmm. use a lot of ballet terms for the choreography that we do yeah you know i'm gonna be honest aside from the soup category uh i thought the uh i thought this board was was pretty uh pretty gettable yeah I, i found it yeah i thought i thought so too i learned that Thanksgiving was moved one week earlier by FDR. Yeah, I didn't realize in, that. In 1939. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I had no idea. We find the Daily Double in the category The Contest at the $800 level. Ken uncovers it as the 19th pick and wagers 3000 of his 4600 Uh Nancy has 3200 at that point. Uh, David is... Back at zero, having uh, gotten some points on the board and then uh, and then lost them in a in a wrong guess. Ken gets the clue. Nineteen eighty four. Walter Mondale got his thirteen electoral votes by winning D.C. and this state, uh, and he correctly responds Minnesota. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. Um, Ken is in a very solid lead with 10,600, although as we know, that's going to change. Uh, Nancy is at 4,800. David is at 400. And we get the double jeopardy categories, zoology, pro sports venues, funny hats, patent pending, grab bag, and slang. We have a, we have a book, a kid's book called Have You Seen My Hat? I love that book. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, that the well, the funny hats category made me think. Oh, maybe that it's not going to have that book, but made me think yeah. of that book. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that book was written later. Yeah, um, of course, but also. Yeah, I feel good. like you could do like a hats in children's literature category. Mm-hmm. That would work. It would work. You would need the sorting hat again. You could do caps for sale. The man with the yellow hat. The cat with the hat. There we go. Yeah, this is a this is a whole category. We should be Jeopardy writers. I need to leave this in so that the writers listening are clued in to let us know when there's an opening. 
Also, we have to leave it in because then if they have a hats and children's literature category, oh. that's like their secret signal to us. Yeah. That they, they are listening to our podcast. That's right. That's right. That'd be yeah. really good. Yeah. Oh, you man. guys should do that. I would. It would be that, that kind of excitement, which I'm sure you also get, and I'm sure plenty of our listeners get, like the kind of excitement that is like, oh, this thing is really awesome, but literally no one in my world will care about this other than yeah. me. <laughs> and I want to yeah. share it, but I'm not going to get the reaction that I want. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> there was some good be more specific banter in the very first. Oh, it was pick. so funny. <laughs> Uh, it was the slang category at the $400 level. Uh, the clue was, wife beater is a controversial slang term for this ribbed white item of apparel. Ken rang in and said, what's a kind of shirt? Alex said, be more specific. Ken said, undershirt. Alex said, be more specific. And uh, Ken laughed and eventually said, what's a sleeveless undershirt? Um and Alex said that they would accept that, but they'd been looking for tank top. And Ken, <laughs> Ken says, is that what the young people are saying? Um, which, like, <laughs> how old was he when he taped this? He's like, uh, barely he more his... than a child. Well, I, I don't know. I was going to say I think yeah. he was in his 30s, but sure. No, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. He was, he was 30. Anyway, that was, it was a good moment. It was, yeah, very good. They ended up leaving two clues on the board in this round, and I think part of it was because there were a number of triple stumpers. There was actually, uh, the stat is there there were uh, nine triple stumpers in this game. Wow. So it was a tough game for the contestants, and I, I realize that I have the benefit of 16 years of like added knowledge to the world and easier access to information, but I don't, I don't know. It did not feel that, mm-hmm. that hard to me, but not to say like I would have done better or yeah three three of those triple stumpers were the the last three of the round in the pro sports venues which uh they 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 seem to strategically go to last it looked like it was going to turn into another like a repeat of the football or i guess a Mm -hmm. predecessor to the football category yeah that is infamous uh for you know sports not being a strong suit of a lot of jeopardy folk i imagine at this point ken jennings would have run the run the column Mm-hmm. I, oh, I, think, sure. I think I think that he has shored up that amount of that bit of knowledge as, as, yeah. now that, as well as many Now that others. he's uh, now that he's you know. quit his day job and become a professional knower of things for the last right. sixteen years, I would expect him to know these things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah probably. At the time, um, he was like what a software engineer with a small child. Like you know, mm-hmm. there, there were going to be some gaps there. Um, right. One of those gaps was the second daily double. It came in the pattern. Pending, that's a category about George Patton. It was uh, at the $1,600 level. Ken was in a nice lead. Uh, he was at 14600 Nancy was at 8400 and David was at 1200 Ken wagered 5400 to get up to an even 20000 if he got it right. And he got the clue. On December 26, 1944, Patton's forces relieved this town in Belgium's Ardennes. The Germans were driven out in January. Uh, and he wasn't able to pull it. He guessed what is Verdun, although the Battle of Verdun was famously a World War I battle. And Alex says, no, what is Baston? And then he gives an anecdote about it that it was encircled and Brigadier General McAuliffe said nuts in response to the surrender attempt, which is not really the clue I would have given, but... (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, Bastone is where the Battle of the Bulge happened. And we don't normally, like a lot of battles we remember by the name of the town or whatever that is nearby, but that particular battle is not remembered as Bastone. It's referred to as the Battle of the Bulge. I had not made that connection because I'm terrible at military history. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Alex gives this uh, this anecdote as if, like, oh, if you just remembered this anecdote that we all know, then you would have remembered, of course. That's right, um, exactly. <laughs> if he could have just said the Battle of the Bulge, and I think Ken would have probably been like, oh, yeah, but he gives this little thing that's like, he said nuts. I'm like, how is, how is that, like, your touchstone for this? Right. <laughs> yeah. I do like when we get to, like, get a glimpse into, like, uh, what Alex Trebek is like, you know, like his intellectual passions. Um, yeah. Weird quotes from history. That's one of his yep. go-tos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, another of Ken's knowledge gaps comes up in the funny hats category as the third daily double. Uh, it's the 22nd pick of the round at the $1,600 level. And he wagers 4,800 out of his 15,200. At this point, Nancy has 8,400 and David is at negative 800. Um, so Ken is looking to put himself out of reach if he gets it correct. Um, but if he misses it, he will still have the lead. Um, he gets the clue. The name of this often brimless hat, popular in the 1920s, is French for Belle after the shape of the hat. And he guesses, what is a campan? Um, Alex says, no, women would know this. Women would know this. Women would know, you know, this woman does. Um, Also, you know, people who are into fashion, people who speak French, bell enthusiasts would know this. Um, Men who study hats. (laughs) Uh, The correct response is a cloche. Yeah, that, that one came easily to me, although I hate to confirm Alex's gender, gender stereotyping. I like the $2,000 clue in grab bag. This this was just, it was in my wheelhouse and it was a fun little thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this ballet Rus founder had tried to be a composer, but Rimsky-Korsakov told him to stop. And that's Diaghilev, which I knew because I, I enjoy Russian music and Russian ballet music, particularly from, from that era. Uh, and... Diaghilev is an important person with like Stravinsky and the and the advancement of music, but I'd never known that. That's a fun. <laughs> that's a funny little. <laughs> yeah. Funny little thing. Um. Yeah. That that's a that's a fun fact. Um. I the name Nijinsky came right to mm-hmm. me. Um. But was incorrect. Uh. He was a ballet dancer. Yes. Not the ballet Russe founder. Um, yeah, yes. so like that was one of those, like, oh, I'd worked so hard to learn that and, um, close, but no. Right. You have to have two names. You have to have Diaghilev and Nishinsky. Yeah. You remember that Diaghilev is the, is the founder and choreographer among, among other things, obviously. Um, and then Nishinsky is the, the famous dancer. So. Yeah. Yep. Now I've got it sorted out. All right. So. We get to Final Jeopardy. Thanks in large part to two big misses on Daily Doubles. Uh, as Alex points out, obviously we didn't get to see the episodes before this, but I do remember that it, a, a fairly sizable portion of Ken's wins were lockouts. 
but Alex points out this is not a runaway. Ken is at 14,400. Nancy is at a solid 10,000. David, unfortunately, just really couldn't get in on the buzzer too much. And when he did, he, he took some guesses, especially toward the end. Like, you know, you got to if you're in the red and, you got, and you're trying to get back in the game. That's what you got to do. But he ended at negative 2,800. So he was out for this, mm-hmm. this final. Uh, they get the category business and industry. And the clue, most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white-collar employees work only four months a year. And man, even even now, even like knowing knowing this kind of iconic part of Jeopardy history, this is still a tough clue. Mm-hmm. This is a like this is a hard a hard clue because you have to you, you got to narrow down what industry it is like from mm-hmm. f- at first, and that's hard enough as it is, and then you have to determine the right firm, you know? Um, yeah. And so Nancy wrote down. What is H&R Block? That is correct. She wagered 4401 to get a dollar ahead of Ken. And Ken wrote, what is FedEx? And mm-hmm. he had made a cover bet, which dropped him down to 87.99. So Nancy mm-hmm. Zerg became the champion. Yes. Um, there was a little bit of brilliant TV making uh, that was pointed out in the, in the Jeopardy! contestant community. Um, that they cut right over to Nancy uh-huh. as Ken's incorrect response was revealed. Mm-hmm. At, and she realized that she was going to win the game against uh, Ken Jennings. Right. Um, it's a great reaction shot. Mm-hmm. And Ken was so wholesome, you know, like there was this like, ah, nuts, you know, uh, like, but, you know, like just I, he came across to me as very gracious. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. Um, it was just a, it, it was a lovely moment, um, good sportsmanship all around. Yeah. I don't know if you, you, I mean, you had to have been there cause it was Maggie telling us, uh, or maybe, maybe you weren't, uh, talking about how just nice a guy Ken is. That, yeah. Uh, when the, after, after he had lost and he was, uh, and he was backstage, he called his wife and was, you know, telling her and everything. And he, he said something like, and it was so nice. Everyone stood up and gave Nancy a standing ovation. It was really cool. <laughs> and, and yeah, and Maggie was just was like, I, you know, that kind of sums him up that he didn't even, it didn't even occur to him that it could be for him. So Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they're planning to air during the hiatus, but I would, I would love to see, I would love to, I would love to see more of his original run. Um, He's joked around a little bit in interviews as they've been uh, getting ready to re-air this that showing his first and last game makes him look like he won half of his games. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So that it would be it would be fun to see more. Um, yeah. Well, we yeah. do know that the uh, tournament of champions will be aired again this summer. Oh, great. Not that we yeah. talk about that again, but we had a little flash of you, Kyle, in a promo for Jeopardy's Facebook page. Yeah, you know. Okay, so my mom told me, like, she called me and she was like, "Did you watch Jeopardy tonight?" And I was like, "I haven't, I haven't watched it yet." And she was like, "Okay, make sure to watch past the end. Like, make sure to watch, you know, up until Wheel of Fortune starts." And I was like, uh, "Okay," I didn't, you know, didn't know. And she was like, "Yeah." 
So I did. And it's like, it's like an eighth of a second. <laughs> and she got so excited. She's like, look, it's you. I'm like, I know. I've, they own my image. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Why is it? And she's like, but it was you. And I was like, yes. And Ryan and Alan and Anarchy and Lindsay and like everyone else. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. but she was just so excited. I was like, you know, you've watched me actually on the show, right? Anyway. Yeah. But yes, we did get a little little clip of me. And the, the promo for Jeopardy's Facebook page, which, uh, with all due respect, is a cesspool. Um, <laughs> That's not Jeopardy's fault. <laughs> it's, it's not. I mean, they, they, they could moderate more, but they don't have to. Uh, yeah. It's not their fault. It's right. not their fault. It's what happens to Facebook pages. That's what happens uh, to the internet. Yeah. Anyway. So it looks like we've got... Four more weeks of new Jeopardy episodes coming up, mm-hmm. and then we'll go to reruns, most likely. Yep. Most, most likely. We're, we're going to we're reruns. Going so no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be two weeks of regular episodes, and then the teacher's tournament, I believe. Oh, nice. Okay. I think. Yeah, 2020 teacher's tournament. This will be great. I say I'm really pushing. I'm, I'm not. I don't know how. I'm putting it out into the universe, and maybe the writers will listen to me and, you know whoever listens to this podcast, but I was, I'm really hopeful for an ultimate teachers tournament where they bring back all of the teachers who were champions (laughs) because I want to be back on the show. Just like, just like everyone, everyone wants to be back. Everyone, everyone is always coming up with the, the, uh, the imaginary tournament that would get them back on the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tournament of clergy, I would accept. There you go. Yeah. Um, Second chance tournament for people who played against five plus game winners. Uh, one per winner chosen based on highest <laughs> non-winning Coriat score. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> tournament of people named Emily. Um, really, any of those would be fine. I'm in for any of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tournament of people named Emily would be would be a little hard to uh, hard to um, hard to host though. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be like Jeff Pretty. To... <laughs> My kids ask to watch Jeff Pretty every day now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So good. Uh, I guess now is the time that we talk about Patreon. Check out our Patreon. Uh, like we said, it's got the GOAT tournament recaps on there, uh, as well as other stuff, which we will be adding to for our uh, patrons. There are subscription levels from $3 on up, and I'm not going to spend any more time talking about that. So check it out. Okay, so, Emily, do you have guesses? I have some guesses. uh, You mentioned earlier that we were were going to have a deep dive based on one of the GOAT tournament episodes that aired this week. Um, So my first guess are we talking about Othello we are not talking about Othello okay there, there weren't a whole lot of triple stumpers or Miss Daily Doubles to pick from um, so I will say I will say it was not a triple stumper I don't think Ooh. okay I only looked at triple stumpers I thought James Clark Maxwell would have been a reasonable one but that was that, triple stumper so. that would have been right. a reasonable one I thought about that one I thought about that one pretty hard uh, but I, I decided to go in a different direction all right. 
Um, I'm not really sure which way you're you're going because I looked. I really focused on the on the triple stumpers and daily doubles. Um, the other guest that I had, of course, was um, from a final Jeopardy. Um, the two foreign-born directors, Ang Lee and Alfonso Cuarón. Oh, no, I'm. <laughs> Uh, I am not at all equipped to begin approaching something like film <laughs> trivia. There are all way right. too many people in our community oh, who are, yeah. would the just film be like... trivia nerds are intense. Yeah, they'd be like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'd be like, that's yeah. fair. I, I do not know what I'm talking about. So, uh, I'm no, not sure not we were ever, ever claimed to be people who knew what we were talking about. That, you know, that's true. But we do, we do, uh, we, we care about least... getting things right. True, right. and we also offer deep dives as though they are factual. So yes. All right. No. Um. Uh. I actually went with. Uh. This was from the last game of the Go tournament. Um, Ooh, okay. It's in the Jeopardy round. It was in the Welcome Back Boys category. The thousand dollar clue. On December nineteenth, nineteen seventy two, astronauts Cernan Schmidt and Evans splashed down in the Pacific as this last manned moon mission came to an end. Uh, James got that one. It is Apollo 17. So I am going to be talking about the Apollo program. Oh, great. I knew some piecemeal information about it and uh, realized that, that the stuff that I thought I knew I wasn't particularly confident in. And uh, it would just, it would behoove me to, to know it a little bit better. So that's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to try and move at a fairly reasonable pace through it because obviously it's it was a big thing and there's a lot that goes into it but mm -hmm. uh that's what we're talking about so the apollo program was the third human spaceflight program by nasa which of course stands for the national aeronautics and space administration mm -hmm. the apollo program was first conceived during the eisenhower administration uh, in 1960 as a three-person spacecraft uh, meant to follow up the one-person Project Mercury. President Kennedy later dedicated Apollo to the specific mission of landing a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s and returned him safely to Earth. Uh, Project Gemini was implemented to bridge the gap between Mercury and Apollo uh, after the Apollo program uh, got its start. The program achieved its goal on July 20th, 1969, when Apollo 11 landed Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the lunar surface with Michael Collins orbiting, and returned the three safely on July 24th. Five more Apollo missions landed astronauts on the moon, with a total of 12 men having walked on the moon. To kind of understand the context of where it's coming from, we gotta go back to the beginning of the space race. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik 1, which was the world's first artificial satellite. Uh, Sputnik 1 was a mere 58 centimeters across, or 22.8 inches, and weighed 83.6 kilograms, or 183.9 pounds, and it took 98 minutes to orbit the Earth. However, this was not really the beginning. We have to go back to 1952, when the International Council of Scientific Unions uh, determined that the period of July 1st, 1957 to December 31st, 1958 would be the International Geophysical Year because they predicted high levels of solar activity during that time. And then in October of 1954, the Council adopted a resolution calling for artificial satellites to be launched during the IGY to map Earth's surface. 
So that was really the the beginning of the space race. Because obviously in order to launch a satellite into space and make it orbit, you had to be working on that for a while. It wasn't like, you know, the Soviets were like, I think we're going to do this. And then the U.S. was like, oh, no, we need to catch up. They'd been working on it for a number of years. So in July of 1955, the White House announced plans for an Earth-orbiting satellite to launch during the IGY. And they called for proposals. And the Naval Research Laboratory's Vanguard project was chosen. However, Sputnik 1 happened very early in the uh, international geophysical year, right? It began in July of 1957, and they launched in October of 1957. And that kind of caught the U.S. off guard. Not only did they launch first, but uh, Sputnik was much larger and more impressive than the Vanguard design was, which only had a three and a half pound payload, as opposed to the 184 pounds that Sputnik 1 was. And then Sputnik 2 quickly followed the first one on November 3rd, 1957, carrying an even heavier payload, and the first living creature in space, the dog Laika. Aw, cute little Laika. So when Sputnik 1 launched, the U.S. Department of Defense immediately approved a bunch of funding for another satellite project. So alongside the development of Vanguard, uh, Werner von Braun and the Army Redstone Arsenal team began work on the Explorer project. And Explorer 1 launched January 31st, 1958, uh, with a small scientific payload that eventually discovered the magnetic radiation belts around the Earth, which are named after principal investigator James Van Allen. Hmm. And then in July of 1958, Congress passed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, which instituted NASA. From that point, we began with Project Mercury, which ran from 1958 to 1963 with the goal of putting a man into orbit. Uh, It had 20 uncrewed flights. Some of those had living animals on them. uh, And then six manned flights. It was also uh, the introduction of Astronaut Group 1, which are also referred to as the Original 7 or the Mercury 7. And they are Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn... Gus Grissom, Wally Shira, Alan Shepard, and Deke Slayton. Mm-hmm. So those were the first seven American astronauts. Uh, however, the Soviet Union, again, was the first to put a human into space and into uh, orbit, the cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, aboard the ship Vostok 1. That was on April 12th, 1961. Not long after this, on May 5th, the U.S. launched its first astronaut, Alan Shepard, on a suborbital flight. In August of that year, the Soviets launched another person, uh, Kermon Titov, and he went on a a day-long orbit. Finally, on February 20th of 1962, Mercury achieved its mission when John Glenn made three orbits around the Earth. Uh, The Mercury program ended in May of 1963, and both nations had sent six people into space. Uh, However, the Soviets led the U.S. in total time spent in space. So I mentioned that the Apollo program uh, was initiated during the Eisenhower administration in 1960. So while Mercury was going on, uh, the Apollo program was being worked on. So uh, the Mercury capsule could only support one astronaut, and it was a limited orbital 
mission. Uh, the goal was for Apollo to carry three, and obviously later on uh, to reach the moon. When it was instituted, the thought was that the uh, Apollo could be used to ferry crews to a space station, uh, to make circumlunar flights, or eventually make lunar landings, which it did. In July 1960, the NASA deputy administrator announced the Apollo program to uh, industry representatives in a series of space task group conferences, and uh, preliminary specifications were laid out for a spacecraft with a mission module cabin, which was separate from the command module, and a propulsion and equipment module. So uh, looking at the designs for these different uh, aspects of the, of the spacecraft. Later on in 1960, a competition was announced, and by October, three study contracts were awarded to General Dynamics, Conbear, General Electric, and the Glenn Martin Company. Uh, and in the meantime, NASA continued with its own in-house designs led by Maxime Faget. So they were taking, in, taking on these different bids and these different designs to decide what would work best. While that was happening, Project Gemini was instituted. It is the second human spaceflight program of NASA, uh, and it was brought forth to kind of bridge the gap, like I mentioned, between Mercury and Apollo. Mercury showed that we had the technology to get humans into space and sustain them for a short time. With uh, President Kennedy's uh, platform for election being a, a push for dominance over the Soviet Union uh, in terms of arms and also uh, space uh, superiority, the focus of Apollo became landing a man on the moon, like I mentioned. So they needed separate projects meant to sustain more than one person and extend the technology to the point where uh, Apollo would be able to reach the moon. Uh, it performed missions long enough for a trip to the moon and back, and it also perfected working outside of the spacecraft with extravehicular activity, as well as pioneering the orbital maneuvers necessary to achieve uh, space rendezvous and docking, which, which is part of the Apollo uh, moon missions. So with those uh, techniques proven by Gemini, Apollo could pursue its mission without having to uh, take time with the actual Apollo program to uh, determine that, that feasibility and, and find that technology. A little, little bit of side trivia about Gemini. The constellation for which the project was named uh, is commonly pronounced Gemini, with the last syllable rhyming with I. However, the staff of the Manned Spacecraft Center in, in Houston uh, and also the astronauts of the Gemini project, uh, they tended to pronounce it Gemini. As well they should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could... Sure, we can, we can get into that. <laughs> Whatever. Um, this has been classical language pedantry with Emily. Okay, Gemini program, Gemini. Sure. Get uh, it. And you can hear it on, on recordings from their, from, you know, their communication, from their capsules and spacewalks and everything. Uh, and in the recent film, First Man, uh, that's the pronunciation that they used for Gemini. Mm. Really, it should Which be a hard G. Gemini. Gemini. Okay. Well, still, I mean, so they're halfway right. I think. I think it yeah. should be. I think it should be a hard G. Yeah. I don't know. All right. They're well, still. I, that... I appreciate a bit of pedantry. Sure. Sure. Don't we all? Uh, so 
with President Kennedy laying out the mission to reach the moon and come back, the designers of the Apollo spacecraft had to determine what they think what they thought the best method of approach was. And so they came up with four possible mission modes. The lunar surface rendezvous, which would have two spacecraft launched uh, one after the other. The first was an automated vehicle that would carry the uh, propellant for the return to Earth, and it would basically just crash into the moon and be there for when the second ship arrived, which had the crew on it. And so the first, you know, they, they would land on the moon, and then they would find the second craft and take that back to Earth. Uh, there was also the Earth Orbit Rendezvous, which had a variety of different plans, some up to 15 different rocket launches that would carry parts of the ship into space and they would assemble the spacecraft uh, in orbit. They also didn't do that. Uh, another was Direct Ascent, which uh, would say that the spacecraft would just go directly from Earth straight onto the lunar surface rather than going into orbit around the moon. But with the one that they decided to go with, which ended up being the, the you know, successful mode, was Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. So launch from Earth one spacecraft. That spacecraft then enters a lunar orbit. And from the lunar orbit, a landing module would descend. A lunar module would descend to the, the lunar surface. And then uh, an even smaller piece of the lunar module would eject and return and rendezvous with the orbiting ship, uh, which would then return to Earth. Uh, this was the last option considered because uh, a lot of the thought initially was there is a huge amount of risk with rendezvous and docking in space, which is true, but it ended up being the most, uh, the most viable option and the one they went with. Um, uh, the spacecraft components for Apollo, uh, they ended up going with uh, Maxime Faget's design. He was, again, the one working for NASA, so they didn't actually go with any of the, the contractor bids. And so uh, it's, you know, what you see from the footage. Got rid of the idea of a separate mission module from the command module and just put them together. So uh, the spacecraft essentially has, has three parts. There's the command and service module. Uh, which the crew would spend most of the time in during the direct ascent mission and lift off from their lunar surface. Uh, there is also the lunar module, or the lunar excursion module, uh, which is the part of the ship that detached and landed on the moon. And then there was uh, the launch vehicles. So these launch vehicles are not actually part of the like Apollo spacecraft. Uh, the Apollo spacecraft is made up of the command module and the lunar module. We have the launch vehicles Little Joe 2, and then the ones we know of, the Saturn series. Little Joe 2 was used for uh, some of the early test flights in the Apollo program, the unmanned flights. But then we got to the uh, Saturn series. The Saturn 1 was the first U.S. heavy lift launch vehicle, and it was used to, uh, or it was planned to launch partially equipped uh, command modules into low Earth orbit tests. However, it never actually did. It was replaced by the Saturn IB. Uh, the Saturn IB was the upgraded version of the Saturn one, and this is the one that was used in some Gemini launches as well as some earlier, uh, some of the other Apollo 
test launches. And then we get to the Saturn V, which is the rocket we all know and love. Uh, the Saturn V was a heavy launch vehicle, and uh, it was the one that was used to launch all of the manned uh, Apollo missions. It's a three-stage rocket designed to send a fully-fueled command module and lunar module to the moon. It's that big rocket we see when we watch that old footage. So that's the, that's the launch vehicle. So I mentioned the, uh, the Mercury program had seven astronauts. The Gemini program obviously had more. And the Apollo program ended up with 32 astronauts assigned to fly missions. By this time, the director of flight crew operations was Deke Slayton, who was one of the original Mercury 7. Uh, however, he, didn't, he, he did not go into space because uh, he was grounded due to a heart murmur before his launch. Mm. Uh, so 24 of the 32 Apollo astronauts left Earth's orbit and flew around the moon between December 6, 1968 and December 1972. Uh, half of those 24 walked on the, the moon's surface. Uh, however, no one has done it more than once. The Apollo astronauts were chosen from Project Mercury and Gemini veterans, plus uh, some later groups, but a lot of the names uh, of, the, of the flight crews we see from those earlier missions as well. Uh, all of the missions were commanded by Gemini, or now I want to say Gemini, were commanded by Gemini or Mercury veterans. NASA awarded all 32 of the astronauts its highest honor, the Distinguished Service Medal, given for distinguished service, ability, or courage, and personal contribution representing substantial progress to the NASA mission. They were awarded posthumously to the crew of Apollo 1, which were Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Apollo 1, uh, th that crew were killed uh, in a fire in the command module during a, a ground test in prep preparation for the Apollo 1 mission. And they were designated Apollo 1 at the request of their widows. And so they were awarded that posthumously in 1969, and then all of the crews from Apollo 8 onward were given that, that award. However, Apollo 7 which was not a uh, which was not an actual moon mission. It was an or Earth orbital test mission, which had Walter Shira, Don Isley, and Walter Cunningham. Uh, they were not awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Initially, they were awarded the Exceptional Service Medal, which is like the Silver Medal, uh, because there were some discipline problems with. <laughs> uh, with the flight director's orders during their flight. However, uh, in October of 2008, NASA kind of went back on that and awarded them the Distinguished Service Medal as well. All right, so that's a lot of information. Here's a quick rundown of the actual Apollo missions. There were, like I said, a, a number of unmanned uh, test launches for different um, different rockets and different modules and things like that. They were labeled just like AS-201, 202, 203, 204. Uh, AS-204 was later renamed Apollo 1 uh, because that it, it did not fly. We jump from there to Apollo 4, November 9th, 1967. This was the first test flight of the Saturn V and placed a command module in a high Earth orbit. Apollo 5, also unmanned, Earth orbital flight test of a lunar module, 
and it was launched on a Saturn IB, and so it demonstrated some other things. Apollo 6, again, unmanned. This was on April 4th, 1968. Uh, second flight of the Saturn V, uh, attempted demonstration of a translunar injection and direct return of uh, abort using the SM engine. Uh, there were three engine failures during the Apollo 6 launch. Despite that, they were able to human rate the Saturn V uh, rocket. So on a, on October uh, 11th of 1968, Apollo 7 launched. And again, that had the crew Wally Shiro, Walt Cunningham, and Don Isley. Uh, this was the first crewed Earth orbital mission of a Block II command module. And it was the first live television publicly broadcast from a crewed mission. Mm. Uh, and that lasted 11 days, from October 11th to October 22nd, 1968. And that paved the way for Apollo 8, which was the first moon mission. Uh, from December 21st to December 27th, 1968, uh, the crew was Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders. It was the first crewed flight on a Saturn, launched by a Saturn V, and the first crewed flight to the moon. The command module made 10 lunar orbits in 20 hours. So the Apollo 8 was the first to reach the moon. It didn't land, but it reached the moon and made 10 orbits before returning. Mm -hmm. uh, and you might recognize the name James Lovell. He comes back later. Okay. Uh, Apollo 9... Uh, was from March 3rd to March 13th, 1969. Uh, that was with James McDivitt, David Scott, and Russell Schweikert. This was the second crewed flight uh, launched on a Saturn V, and the first crewed flight of a command module and lunar module in Earth orbit. And it demonstrated portable life support system to be used on the lunar surface. So Apollo 8 did not even have a lunar module that was meant to be tested. So they couldn't have landed if they wanted to. Apollo 9 was the first to test the life support systems of the lunar module. Uh, Apollo 10 was May 18th to the 26th, 1969. And that was the crew Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan. Uh, and this was the dress rehearsal for the first lunar landing. So they reached the moon, they orbited the moon, and they flew the lunar module down to uh, 50,000 feet from the lunar surface, or 15 kilometers. Then they returned the lunar module, docked with the command module, and returned to Earth. Uh, which showed that pretty much all systems were go up to the point of actually landing on the moon. So that brings us to Apollo 11. Mm -hmm. July 16th to the 24th, 1969. With the crew Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. It was the first crewed landing. They landed in Tranquility Base in the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. They spent a total of two hours and 31 minutes uh, outside the vehicle on the moon. Uh, Apollo 12 was November 14th to the 24th, 1969. Uh, and that was the crew, uh, Pete Conrad, Richard Gordon, and Alan Bean. This was the second landing on the moon. It was in the ocean of storms. Uh, they spent seven hours and 45 minutes outside the vehicle. Uh, then we get to Apollo 13, which people know much more than any other mission, I think. Uh, it had the crew, Fred Haste, Jack Swigert, and led by James Lovell, the veteran of mm -hmm. Apollo 8. So this was a third landing attempt, and it was aborted in transit to the moon. 
the the crew had to use the um, lunar module as a lifeboat to return to Earth. So they had to slingshot around the moon and use the life support systems in the lunar module. NASA labeled this mission as a successful failure. <laughs> Which is a nice way to put it, I guess. That, um, I mean, that I mean, sounds correct to me. Yeah, yeah. They did not succeed on their mission, but they made it back to Earth alive. Which is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that's mind-boggling. Yeah. And, you know, that was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Uh, okay, so we get Apollo 14. This was crewed by Edgar Mitchell, Stuart Rusa, and Alan Shepard, first man in space, now leading the third landing. They landed in the Fra Moro Formation on the moon, and uh, they spent 9 hours and 21 minutes outside of the vehicle. Apollo 15 was July 16th to August 7th, 1971. That was with James Irwin, Alfred Warden, and David Scott, who we had heard before. Uh, it was the first extended lunar module and rover mission landed in the Hadley-Apennine area. Uh, and so, that, like I said, this was the first one with the lunar rover, and they spent 18 hours and 33 minutes on the lunar surface outside their vehicle. Apollo 16 was April 16th to uh, 27th, 1972, with Charles Duke, Kenneth Mattingly, and John Young. They landed in the plane of Descartes. And they spent 20 hours and 14 minutes outside the vehicle. And then finally, Apollo 17, like in the clue, December 7th to the 19th, 1972, with Harrison Schmidt, Ronald Evans, and uh, Eugene Cernan. Uh, it was the only Saturn V night launch, uh, which is good to la- I always thought you'd need to launch at night, because otherwise, where's the moon? You know what I mean? <laughs> And it had the first geologist on the moon. So Harrison Schmidt was not a, uh, like, professional astronaut. He was a scientist with NASA. And so uh, they brought him along for that. And they spent 22 hours and two minutes outside the vehicle. Uh, It was the last Apollo crewed man landing, crewed moon landing. At about the time of the first landing in 1969, uh, it was decided to use an existing Saturn V rocket to launch the Skylab orbital laboratory pre-built on the ground, replacing the original plan to construct it in orbit. Uh, And that decision eliminated the need for the planned Apollo 20 mission. At that time, NASA's yearly budget also began to shrink. They landed on the moon. So all the politicians were like, cool, we did it. We don't need to give them any more money. And... Uh, they all, and NASA also needed to make funds available for the development of the space shuttle program that was coming later. So in 1971, the decision was made to also cancel missions 18 and 19. Uh, and the unused Saturn Vs that were meant for those missions are now exhibits in Kennedy Space Center, Marshall Space Center, Johnson Space Center. So the cutbacks forced mission planners to reassess the original planned landing sites in order to achieve more effective geological samples. Uh, so, like, Apollo 15 had to change where it landed. So did Apollo 14 uh, in order to, to really, like, for the scientists to get as much as they could out of it, knowing that they essentially lost three, well, two, uh, Apollo 18 and 19. They lost two missions that... In August of 1971, just after Apollo 15, President Richard Nixon... <laughs> Proposed canceling remaining the two remaining lunar landing missions, Apollo 16 and 17. However, uh, he was persuaded to let them go ahead. 
looking at the Apollo program overall, the total cost in original dollars of the Apollo program was $25.4 billion. Mm. And uh, obviously, you know, lasted over 10 years. But it was highly successful. A huge amount of technology that we now have came from the Apollo program research. And obviously had a huge cultural impact as well. I mean, the, the crew of Apollo 8 sent the first televised pictures of Earth and the moon back to Earth. We get the blue marble and Earthrise from these missions, uh, which profoundly changed, like, human perspective on the Earth, yeah. you know? Like, it, it's not just a nice picture. It, it was the first time that humans saw Earth as a, like, you know, for what it is, as a planet, finite mm-hmm. yeah. and kind of small. And uh, according to The Economist, Apollo succeeded in accomplishing President Kennedy's goal of taking on the Soviet Union in the space race by accomplishing a singular and significant achievement to demonstrate the superiority of the free market system. However, the publication noted the irony that in order to achieve that goal, the program required the organization of tremendous public resources within a vast centralized government bureaucracy. Which I think is an important thing for us to look at right now. (laughs) Perhaps... Anyway, so that's the Apollo program. Neat. Whew. Thank you. That's um, much more thorough than my knowledge of the Apollo program has ever been. Um, I've been kind of meaning to brush up on my uh, on my um, space exploration history, and this was this was a great way to do that. Um, so thank you. Good. Uh, you're very welcome. All right, so we have a quiz. All right. I'm sort of dreading the quiz today after after what I pulled last week, but right, what do you got? <laughs> Again, I don't know. I don't know. These were all things that were kind of within my knowledge. I don't know if they are hard or not. Okay. Okay. Question one. Explorer. My European history teacher in high school often said that the children's pool game Marco Polo should instead be named after this explorer who was actually the first European to chart a course by sea to India. Oof. Who is that explorer? I've lost all of my explorers for a second. All right. I'll add that he's Portuguese, if that helps. Um, all right, the one who is coming to mind, I can't remember his first name, Dagama. Is the, is the one who's coming to mind. I don't know if that's correct or not, but I'll go with him. That is correct. It is Vasco Woo-hoo! da Gama. Yes. Yay! Yes, my 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 European history teacher. That, that was a sticking point for him. I don't know why. He was kind of a quirky dude, but he, he brought that up an awful lot, like out mm-hmm. of context in class. We're like, cool, we get it. We get it. You want us to play Vasco da Gama, not Marco Polo. You know we're like 15, right? <laughs> All right. So, anyway. I, that's, that's very funny to imagine the kids at the pool being like, Vasco da Gama. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, good job. 10 points. Thank All right. Uh, question two. Mercury. Mercury has long been used as a medicine for a variety of ailments, including syphilis and typhoid fever, for centuries. Even though it doesn't actually work for pretty much anything other than poisoning yourself. By what colorful name were mercury pills known as in the 
17th to 19th centuries in the U.S. and Europe. Oh, um, I'm guessing this is Quicksilver? I'm going with Quicksilver. Ah, no. Um, mm. Quicksilver comes from much earlier. Uh, okay. Uh, these are called blue mass or blue pills. Oh, okay. Which if you've if you've never heard of that, I'm going to plug another podcast. Check out Sawbones. Oh, I've been meaning to check out Sawbones. All right. They're they're I mean, they have like 300 episodes and pretty much all of them are good. But yeah. the Mercury one is very good. All, all right. right. That's all right. That's okay. You got this. Question 3. Gemini or I guess Gemini. What are the names of the astronomical Gemini twins? Oh. Um. I don't know. I'm. I feel like it's probably like. Probably coming from Greek mythology is my guess. My guess is that it's a set of humans whose names I don't know. But on the off chance that it is the one set of. Uh, deity twins that I can think of. I am guessing Apollo and Artemis. It is not Apollo and Artemis. It is Castor and Pollux. Okay. Which you may uh, never have heard. They, I, I recognize those names now that you say them, but I was never going to get that. Castor yeah. and Pollux? Yes. They are... Right. Uh, legend was that they were sons of Zeus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are, they were credited with the role of saving those in trouble at sea or in grave danger in war, and were associated with horses and sports. All right. Okay. Question four. Saturn. Saturn devouring his son is a gruesome and awesome painting by what Spanish artist? His perhaps best-known painting depicts the events of the 3rd of May, 1808, when Spanish rebels were massacred by French occupiers. Ooh. I don't know. I'm trying to think of Spanish painters. Goya comes to mind. I'm going to go with Goya. It is Francisco Goya. That Yay. is a good guess. Yeah. Man, look it up right now. Just trip, type in Saturn devouring his son. I have a mental image, I think, but I think it's probably not you. Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> it's so that good. Is, that is the mental image I was trying to summon, but oh, it's so much worse than my mental image. Oh, uh, it's so good. Yeah, um, I have I have had the the wonderful opportunity to go to the Prado Museum a couple of times, and ah, uh, I love that painting. That's, that's <laughs> it is all, It is yes. It is. Uh, good. Nice. You're at 20 points. All right. Uh, question five. Now, you being a New York, you know, New York City person, I'm, I think you may get this. Me, I had never heard of this. So. Uh oh. I feel like you just jinxed me, but okay. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It, it seems like it seems pretty obscure. So if you don't, that that's you know whatever. Anyway, Apollo. Performers at the Apollo Theater will often rub a lucky object sitting in the wings of the theater. What is that object? It came oh. from a source that was brought low in 1934, but has remained at the theater since then. I've been to the Apollo, but I don't know. Um, uh, it came from a source that was brought low in 1934. 
Um, trying a rock. Yeah. You're gonna go with a rock. I'm gonna go with a rock. It is a stump. Oh, okay. It is the stump from the tree of hope, which apparently okay. is lucky. All uh, right. That that was new information to me. I didn't okay. remember that. All right, you're at twenty points. I think I had thirteen last week. So, and the category for the final question is space: the final frontier. It's a Star Trek question. I was trying to decide whether it was going to be a Star Trek question or a space exploration question. All right. Um, I'll wager all but one. Okay. I'm going to wager 19 points. For 39. Here's your question. Designed to test the character of Starfleet cadets in training, what is the name of the scenario introduced in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, in which there is no winning option? It has become common parlance for a no-win situation. It has nothing to do with a uh, world champion hot dog eater, nor a professional StarCraft player. It's not coming to me. Um, it's been a while since I saw that one. Um, don't think I know the professional StarCraft <laughs> player. That's not surprising. The hot dog. E- I will. I will. Re- if I should be able to bring the name of uh, names of um, champion hot dog eaters to mind. But I can't I can't get to them right now. Because um, you've dabbled in amateur hot dog eating. We like we've we've put the like the Coney Island hot dog eating contest oh, yeah. on the TV before, you know. Yeah, um, what else are you gonna watch on the fourth of July? Uh, and then like, you know, looked up statistics for for our kids who were <laughs> watching <laughs> horror and fascination. Oh. <laughs> um not the prisoner's dilemma it's not zero-sum game and both of those have this is not that doesn't fit the parameters um i feel like there's a name in it and i can't get to the name Mm. yeah i haven't got anything i guess i guess saying something is better than saying nothing i'm going with the prisoner's dilemma but that's not it no it is the kobayashi maru oh okay yeah, that rings a bell. All Dang. right. One Dang. point. Dang. Uh, so I, I, this this quiz went the, the other way. <laughs> that Apparently it was happen. harder than I anticipated. That's okay. That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get back on track. We, it seems like we, we have some streaks where, where we, yeah. have, we have, we have really good feeling quizzes and then, and then just, uh, and then some ones that don't quite go our way. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be an interesting show if we always got all the quick questions. That's true. Correct. That's true. If they were all very easy. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listeners, hopefully uh, hopefully you were able to get a few of those, uh, or maybe all of them, or maybe I got all of them wrong, and you can tell me that on social media in front of everybody. <laughs> uh, but no matter what, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Make sure to uh, subscribe and review if you could. Give us a rating on that iTunes or whatever whatever application you're using to get to us. And uh, be sure to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. 
You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables One. You can find us on the interwebs at potentpod.com. And our email address, if you want to email us, is potentpodablescast at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next week to talk about another week of new Jeopardy episodes. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Thank you.